The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran welcome to the main street vegan program there is a british futurist who has said that in our digital age the value of content has rapidly been replaced by the value of breathing the same air. And that makes today's program really exciting for me because I am breathing the same air of my two esteemed guests. And it's pretty nice air too, because I am down here in Deerfield Beach, Florida for the Balance for Life National Health Association retreat. And because of that, I get to be speaking with and uh, introducing you to a couple of my favorite healers. And I truly see them this way. For those of you who are new to the program, I am Victoria Moran, and this is Main Street Vegan. You can check out more of what we do at MainStreetVegan.net. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure to be speaking today with a couple of physicians that you know about if you're into the health side of things. Dr. Frank Sabatino, the director of the Balance for Life Retreat Program here in Deerfield Beach. That's a vegan lifestyle education center specializing in plant-based nutrition, health rejuvenation, stress management, and therapeutic fasting. A chiropractic physician who also has a PhD in cell biology and neuroendocrine chronology from the Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Samatino did extensive landmark research on calorie restriction, stress, and aging at the University of Texas Medical School, where he was an assistant professor. And Dr. Alan Goldhammer is also here, and he is the founder of True North Health Center, a state-of-the-art facility that provides medical and chiropractic services, psychotherapy and counseling, and body work, as well as a groundbreaking residential health education program that includes supervised water-only fasting, as well as a training facility for physicians wishing to gain certification in the supervision of therapeutic fasting. Dr. Goldhammer was the principal investigator in two landmark studies dealing with fasting fasting hypertension, and he's currently involved in a study with the Mayo Clinic on fasting and plant-based diet in the prevention of stroke. And guess what else? They've just determined that they've known each other for 40 years, and I've known them for 40 years too, although I was mostly watching from the outside, so I don't know if they knew me, but I knew them and listened to them and still am, and it is such a pleasure to be bringing their wisdom to you today. Welcome, Alan and Frank. Hello, hello. Fabulous to have you here. So you guys both do the same work. It's pretty rare to supervise water-only fasting. And 
you come from the same traditions, and yet you're really different people. So before we get started, let's just share with the listeners how you see medicine, health, and life. Want to start, Dr. Goldhammer? Yeah, okay. So I, I see uh, things pretty simply. I think that you know people that want to be healthy have to pay the price, and that means they have to live healthy. And living healthy involves diet, sleep, and exercise. So the focus has to be on health promotion rather than uh, necessary disease management. Unfortunately, today, most people are focused on they identify symptoms that motivate them, whether it's pain, debility, or fear of death, and then they'll do things to try to make the things that they become aware of go away. What we're really about is trying to teach people how to live in a health-promoting manner so they can avoid having to deal with those issues or at least dramatically delay them. So that is rather different than I think what most people would get from uh, going to their GP. How about you, Dr. Sam? Yeah, it's, it's, it's that idea that we're dealing with a uh, health care model rather than a disease care model. I mean, if you look at the country, we're spending between 2 and $3 trillion on what they call health care when we know that 75% of the money being spent is spent on conditions that are resolved by routine lifestyle healthy choices. And unless you're willing to really make those choices, you're not going to generate and promote those healthier outcomes. You're just going to caretake that set of symptoms and have someone hold your hand with medication or some medical intervention while not getting any closer to recovery. And I think that's important. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that we're spending a tremendous amount of money on health care. Two and a half times as much per person as people in the European Union. And yet we're not living longer and we're not living better. If we look at living longer in terms of life expectancy, uh, average age of death of the person born today, we lag. And, and more importantly, if we look at healthy life expectancy, that is of the years you live, how many are going to be fully functional and vital, we also lag. So it's clear that just spending more money on the, at least on the, in the traditional way that it's being spent now on medical management doesn't make people live longer, doesn't make people live better. So maybe we need to start realizing the reason we're in trouble is we're spending a lot of money on the leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, and stroke, rather than focusing on the actual causes of death, the reason people get heart disease, cancer, and stroke. And it turns out the reason people get the leading causes of death is because of the cigarettes they smoke, the alcohol and drugs they use, and the animal-based uh, highly processed food diets that they eat. If we put more of our time and focus on getting rid of the actual causes of disease, I predict that we'll see a significant reduction in the leading cause of disease. Then why aren't we looking at that? Why isn't the medical system looking at that? Why isn't that what we see on TV? Well, I mean, you had to look at the fact that they're invested. They're invested to keep and maintain disease. I mean, they're a disease care system. It's like if you have a, a drug enforcement agency for many years, what we noticed was that these agencies that were supposed to be putting a damper on drugs were fostering drug abuse and were fostering the sale of drugs in the streets of the United States. It's funny. These organizations get inbred in a way. And so the bottom line is we need to generate uh, – look, if you think about it this way, right now, even in some of the third-party payers, they pay for – a functional improvement. They don't pay for the maintenance care that would be involved with, as uh, Dr. Goldhammer said, would be preventing those outcomes. So, you know, if you invested the money in better ways of eating, better ways of moving, managing stress more effectively, the things that we know are going to eliminate those causes of those outcomes, those outcomes would be eliminated. But there's so much money invested, like take cancer. I love the war on cancer as a classic example. It started out where, you know, 40 years ago, it was 100, one in 100 or 666 people had cancer. Now it's one in three. Are we really winning the war on cancer with all that money spent and all that energy that's been invested in, in a sense, supporting this disease care model? And so, again, you have too many systems, too many drugs, too many industries tied into fostering and literally living off 
the disease care model and you have to really modify that whole mentality to change it. When people are trying to look at another way to do things, they get so many different uh, pieces of information. Yesterday, I happened to walk past the television in the lobby downstairs, and it was the Today Show, and somebody was on there, I don't know, woman talking about food, and she had lots of fruits and vegetables there. I'm thinking, okay, that's good. She had some salmon, which I understand. That's what people in the outside world are into. They're not vegetarian or vegan. They're not thinking about mercury. But then they had this big bowl of coconut oil that had solidified. And I'm not a physician. I've never witnessed open heart surgery, but I've seen enough videos of stuff like that that it was just like, ooh, that's clogged artery gook. And yet it's being recommended as something positive. So how can people get the truth? Well, John McDougall's famous for saying that people love good news about their bad habits. And I think he's really right. Uh, if you're in the business of trying to get attention and sell products and be uh, commercially successful, the best strategy is to tell people what they want to hear. And what they want to hear isn't necessarily what they need to know. Well, that brings another question. I know, Dr. Goldhammer, that you're co-author of a wonderful book called The Pleasure Trap. And a lot of people read that book and say, oh, my gosh, now I get it. Uh, and you can tell people what it's about so those who haven't read it will know. And then other people read it and say, well, I don't really want to live a long time if I can't have any fun. Well, I mean, it's true. What people are concerned about is debility. You know, people um, often spend an average of 9.6 years debilitated in the United States and about 16 to 18 years in, in poor health. So what we're trying to do is not just live longer but live better and dramatically reduce the debility that uh, causes people to look at old age as a bad thing rather than a good thing. The fact is if people preserve their health, their final decades of life can be the richest, most rewarding and enjoyable uh, years of life rather than finding themselves unable to talk or move lying in some nursing home bed waiting for people to change their diaper, being debilitated and dependent on the people around them. The difference is whether they have the heart attack, the stroke, the develop the cancer, the arthritis that limits their capacity to enjoy their life. And what we're really about is teaching people how to live in such a way that they, they can dramatically reduce the likelihood of debility. And that there's overwhelming evidence to support. Uh, and so, you know, that's the good news. The good news is you can do a whole lot in your life to avoid the likelihood that you're going to be that person that wishes uh, that they had a shorter rather than a longer life. So when you talk about some of the things I know in the pleasure trap, we learned that uh, in an anthropological sense, we needed at one point in our history the fat and the concentrated sugar so that we would get enough food to survive and, and reproduce. But now this desire for those concentrated flavors and, and that kind of, of uh, almost drug hit of, of fat and sugar isn't uh, doing well for us anymore. Well, we're designed to, des to seek out calorically dense foods because in the world of our ancient ancestors, humans lived in an environment of scarcity. Most humans that were born never lived to reproduce. They never passed on their DNA. The people that didn't have the ability to, to secure enough to eat were the losers. Your relatives were not the losers. They were the winners. They were the ones that got enough to eat. And part of that was being able to differentiate highly valuable concentrated calorie sources of food and less concentrated calorie sources of food. Now, in the natural setting, it wasn't a problem. There was no refined carbohydrates. There was no sugars and oils and, and, and concentrated refined processed foods. And even animal foods, owing to the fact that they were expensive uh, energetically to obtain, generally represented a very small percentage of people's diets. And so a consequence, we're designed perfectly for the world we evolved in. 
We're not as well designed for the environment we've created recently when we change the environment to include highly processed foods. And so we're vulnerable to this hidden force that undermines health and happiness, the hidden force that's responsible for being fat, sick, and miserable. And that hidden force is the pleasure trap. The artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain that comes from adding chemicals to our food, chemicals like oil, salt, and sugar, that fool us into thinking these are really good things that, and that stimulate us to overeat. We develop the diseases of dietary excess, and the diseases of dietary excess are the diseases of modern society. The cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, the type 2 diabetes, the autoimmune diseases, the lymphoma, that's what's debilitating and killing people. And almost all of those diseases are intimately involved with eating too much, and we're eating too much because we're fooling our brain with these chemicals. And I think we think we deserve it. When you grow up on... on Twinkies and you have an intimate relationship with both little Debbie and Sarah Lee, it's kind of difficult to come into maturity and say, you know, broccoli is my favorite thing. How do we work with the inner part of that, with the, the mental part? Well, you know, what, what, what Alan is saying, you know, it's when you look at the way we grow up, I mean, to play onto this, because the psychological structure of this is like growing up in an Italian household the way that I did, from the first breath you take, you're entrained to use food, not for sustenance, but for distraction and, and stress management in a way. So whatever's going on in your life, you know, you have a problem, you have a problem in a relationship, just eat something, you're gonna be okay. And then it builds in the idea that these comfort foods that are high sugar, high fat, things that have these abilities to trigger this set of chemical changes in the brain become your working model, not for, not for salvation nutritionally, but to solve some of these psychological constructs that we all go through. And so it, re, it, it, it inspires a set of choices then that are not based on allowing the body to thrive in a healthy way, but to kind of deal with and solve some of these psychological constructs while the things that health requires are being sidestepped. And now you're getting into bigger problems. Stepping back a second, when we look at the things we're talking about, as Alan was talking about functional improvement with age, I see it as kind of this triangle of functional aging because when we start doing and making these choices that are much more health promoting, there are three things that happen. And we like to use this word responsibility, which is kind of almost a punitive term in this culture because nobody takes responsibility for anything they do or say. I look at it as a responsibility. We have this ability to respond more effectively to the changing uh, chaos and stresses that we all encounter because, and that leads to a certain bit of resilience. And there's a lot of studies on health being related to that ability to respond more effectively to change and being more resilient in the face of change, which then leads to higher performance at any age. So if you look at our culture, that is the antithesis of what you see. You see less resilience, you see less ability to respond to simple changes, and you see an incredible decline in performance, and we call that aging in the United States or in other parts of the world, but certainly the Western world. So our choices can go a whole other direction, but unfortunately, they're linked with this pleasure outcome and not really looking at why we're making those choices and how we're solving other deeper issues that we need to address in different ways if we're going to break that pleasure trap. So you're really talking about a truly holistic way of, of looking at this. And one of the things I know that you've studied that is fascinating is that we actually have, through the power of personal choice, the ability to alter our genes and maybe our children? Yeah, that's not accurate, totally accurate. We don't change the gene structure. But back, going back into the 40s, there were um, some British physicians that first postulated the idea that, you know, you have, this, you have this genetic environment that we all have that's handed down. 
And so for most people, because it is handed down, they have the sense that this hardwired environment is something that they have to kind of be um, somehow locked into, that it's predetermined, the deterministic nature of their genetic machinery. And what they discovered is, and as most geneticists have known for a while, that genes don't operate in isolation. They operate within an environment that fosters the way that they express. So this whole idea of what's called epigenetic influences came to be, that terminology just means what are the outside environmental forces that either nurture or oppose the expression of what you are hardwired with. So for example, we now know that there are genes in the body that either promote or suppress cancer outcome. And we also know that lifestyle factors like eating whole food plant-based, uh, doing things like consistent activity, even stress management, can turn on or turn off the expression of those genes. So the genes don't change. You're given a set of information, but how it is expressed is remarkably affected by the variation in those lifestyle choices. It's pretty powerful stuff. So bringing it down to where people are actually living and what they're doing, Dr. Goldhammer, what does a person do who wants to have high-level health for life? They get up in the morning and then they... Yeah, so it's, it comes down to three basic behaviors, and that's diet, uh, sleep, uh, and exercise. So, in other words, one of our most important activities is rest and sleep, and yet it's often underestimated, particularly with the advent of electric lights and uh, video and broadcast. People stay up you know, far beyond their natural wake sleep cycle and, is a, and, and are often hyper-stimulated, both with food and with uh, visual input. And as a consequence, they become sleep-deprived. And chronic sleep deprivation leads to everything from immune suppression to fatigue. So getting enough sleep is like number one on the list. Number two is activity. In a natural setting, people couldn't sit on the couch and watch other people pretending to be part of a winning coalition, or they couldn't hire other people to exercise for them and pretend that they're, you know, uh, winning the mock warfare, we call it the NFL. They had to actually move in order to survive. They got hot, they got cold, they got hungry, they didn't want to get eaten. They were forced to move. And as a consequence, today you don't have to move and you can still get enough to eat and not get eaten. And as we get into trouble as a consequence of lack of that input, because what you don't use, you really do lose. And so sarcopenia, lack of uh, muscle tone and strength, bone uh, density issues all uh, come, you know, cr or create problems because of this lack of exercise and activity. And the third is diet. In a natural setting, you ate as much as you could whenever you could of the most concentrated foods available. And if you were lucky, you got enough to eat to survive another day. In the modern world, people are indulging in their addictions. And as a consequence, you know, with, with addictions, you initially you do something because it, it makes you feel good. And eventually you have to keep doing it to avoid feeling very bad. And so what's happening right now is people not only are eating all this highly processed foods in order to you know, deal with their emotional issues or their sources of physical or psychological pain. But they're also doing it because the moment they stop doing it, they go through withdrawal. And ask anybody who's a coffee drinker what happens when they just stop coffee suddenly. They are very uncomfortable because they're addicts. Now, people don't like thinking of themselves as addicts, but we are. We're addicted to the artificial stimulation of dopamine in our brain just the same way any conventional drug addict is. And as a consequence, it's not comfortable making the change to a more health-promoting habit short-term. Long-term, you know, of course it is. But short-term, it feels like a big price that's being paid. That's why we oftentimes use things like fasting to shorten the duration of that um, discomfort and, and difficulty, uh, putting people in a controlled setting so that they're able to you know, make these changes more successfully. Just a little bit. I mean, part of that is that with the pressures of the way the modern society is, 
we get disengaged from what are the real true rhythms and cycles that we really should be participating in. For example, there are no night people. I mean, I love this conversation. You know, I'm a night person. The truth is we're diurnal animals. We're really designed to go to bed and, and slow things down when it gets dark and get activated when it gets light. It's an ancient directive that doesn't change just because we become modern man. So what happens is we see a lot of late night eating. We see a lot of people, like he's saying, sitting. I mean, there was a joke on one of the sports channels. I loved it. They said, what's the difference between man and other primates? Well, we, they don't watch sports. You know, they're not into sports. And it's true. We have a lot of sedentary behavior. But that disconnection from the rhythms of things, that's one of the reasons why I like even this little concept of intermittent fasting a little bit, because it kind of programs a connection back to a timing pattern that's a little bit more conducive to the way hormones related to satiety and food use and many other things can become, in a sense, regulated in a better direction. Because at night, we're supposed to be winding down towards sleep, not eating, not working out heavy, really dealing and preparing for sleep. And then we go to sleep. But for many of us, we're taking so much of the stress of the day to bed with us at night, and we're doing so much stimulant abuse because they wake up tired when they should be waking up energetic. And then instead of winding down at night, they're winding up. And so they've reversed this incredible cycle which is a hormonal cycle. There's a circadian pattern to how adrenals and thyroid and organs and tissues work in the body. And we, in modern times, have absolutely defied that, destroyed that, disconnected from it. And things like fasting, things like these deep physiological resting states or things like intermittent fasting with that kind of re-inspire the connection to that or doing things even as simple as, you know, meditative activity and other activities with yoga, tai chi. A lot of those ancient systems are very tied into cycles of nature, cycles of the body and getting people to connect to those again. And I think that disconnect has created a lot of disturbance because it is true. The data on sleep deficiency is even modest sleep deficiency can increase many fold the risks of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and we know this for quite a while now. So in our work, that's one of the major biological requirements that people have to really think about addressing more successfully. And we really, uh, really talk and speak about that. You know, in a natural setting, uh, there was no late night partying. The people that stayed up late and partied got eaten. Because the, the creatures that are awake at night are the true carnivores. So our ancestors, the winners, were the ones that got very quiet, crawled in the back of some cave. They went to bed when it got dark, and they woke up when it got light. And that provided them the natural needs that they had to re have recuperative sleep, recover, and, uh, and also to avoid uh, predation. Uh, so you know, in the modern world, it turns out you can get away with it uh, without uh, an immediate consequence. But we're definitely paying the long-term price. But what about fun? I can just hear people thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm young. I'm supposed to go out. I'm supposed to party at night. I don't want to live this boring, awful life. What would you say to them? Give it to Alan, then I'll do it. Go ahead. You know, it's funny. Um, the idea of fun, what that pleasure really is, to me, it's much more pleasurable to feel like I have the energy to do what I want to do without having to beat myself up with stimulation. Uh, look, I spent a lot of time growing up in New York, and I'm not going to come from a holier-than-thou attitude because I did just about everything under the sun that anybody can do partying. I mean, when I grew up and I was turned on to this lifestyle, I would be fasting one week and doing every other major pharmaceutical that was on the streets of New York another week. So, you know, that I grew up at a time when New York City was a time of revolution and fermentation in the late 60s. And so the bottom line is what even at that time, even as a younger person going into my 20s, I got to a point where I realized, you know, waking up as a zombie and not being able to get through a day was not something that was attractive. So there's a way to do and have fun with 
the creative endeavors that define us as humans, seeing things and experiencing events and experiencing things that are beautiful and wonderful without having to do that partying mode that involves substances and behaviors of abuse. And I think you get to a point, even the younger millennial population is getting to that point where they're disconnecting from that way of partying because they realize it just undermines their quality of life, their energy and who they can actually be as far as their best self. So it's, I think that we define fun with going over the edge and going into these pleasure traps when in fact fun to me is having this sense of vitality and wonder and ability to appreciate life everything going on around us without disability and pain and dysfunction so that now even at an advanced age you still have that ability to experience all that pleasure they say that nothing tastes as good as healthy feels there's probably some truth to that yeah probably a lot so as we look at how people are, are being taught to be healthy out in the world, I know, Dr. Goldhammer, you have something online. I think your, your talk is called, Why Don't Doctors Tell People to Be Vegan? Why don't they? Well, I think most doctors, it's uh, uh, really more of a question that they just don't know anything about it. it re you know, health has really nothing to do with modern medicine. Medicine is about the use of drugs and surgery to suppress the symptoms of disease. I think they do a really good job on and as a whole with that particular thing. They're not taught, they're not encouraged, they're not compensated uh, to teach people healthy living. And, you know, it's not like they're holding it purposely. They do the same mistakes themselves. Go into any hospital, look around for the really fat people in white coats that are called physicians and see what they're eating and see what they're doing, see what they're feeding their kids. So I don't think it's uh, necessarily a conspiracy. It's just a question of ignorance. Yeah, I can see that. We can only share what we know. So we're going to be going to break in a couple of minutes, and I want to come back and talk about the controversies. I want to talk about, you use the word fat, and there are people who are very upset by that. And, and I want to kind of get through what is the difference between judging somebody by how they look and what's really going on medically when somebody is carrying too much weight. I also want to talk about the vegan world. This is a way of living that is making the planet kinder. It's going to save the planet if anything can, if we can get animal agriculture down to the point where we're not making all these greenhouse gases. And yet, there's a lot of really rich food in the vegan world. Want to know how we can all be uh, part of one family on some of that. And then also, uh, Dr. Sabatino, I want to get into the connection between our ethics and our health. So everybody stay tuned. After the break, we're going to get into a lot of nitty gritty. And in the meantime, check out the blog this week over at MainStreetVegan.net. It is from Chris Kalinich, and it's how to make yourself healthy in your own kitchen goes along really, really perfectly with what we're talking about today. And just make a note, if you want to check out these gentlemen further, Dr. Alan Goldhammer is at True North Health Center out there in Santa Rosa, California. Dr. Frank Sabatino at the Balance for Life Retreat Program in Deerfield Beach Program. Wonderful places to get away and change your life. I've done it a couple of times myself. We'll be back. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. 
If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads the banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what the Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org. Unity is proud to announce the first-ever New Thought Walden Awards, honoring 27 leaders who are helping to change the world. Some are well-known, but most are unsung heroes. They care about spirituality, healing, interfaith understanding, caring for the earth, and social activism. Read about them in the September-October edition of Unity Magazine, or go online to waldenawards.com. Congratulations to all. Give someone you love the gift of inspiration with a subscription to Unity Magazine. Each issue has interesting articles and compelling interviews from some of today's most prominent spiritual thought leaders. Explore new ideas in health, science, spirituality, and a lot more. Send gifts to your family and friends and save $7 off the subscription rate. Get a one-year subscription for just $14.95. This offer ends on December 31st, so go to unity.org to find out more. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore and other legendary Unity teachers with Reverend Bob Brock and Unity Classic Radio. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Central, Bob shares original radio transcripts from the Unity archives with truth students worldwide. Explore these timeless teachings and learn how to apply them to your life today. Listen live or on demand. You can also connect with Reverend Bob on his Unity in Action Facebook page. Tune in every Tuesday here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, and this is the Main Street Vegan Program, where we try to talk about everything that is of interest to vegans and the veg curious. And sometimes we get into areas of controversy, and I think we are in some of those today. I am here with two wonderful physicians, Dr. Frank Sabatino and Dr. Alan Goldhammer. So the primary thing I, I would think that the two of you do in terms of life's work is supervising water-only fasting. So let's just let people know a little bit about that. Most people have never heard of it. Some people think, well, it's a cleanse, it's a detox. What is it exactly? 
Well, there's lots of different versions of fasting out there. Now there's intermittent fasting, which is as simple as narrowing the feeding window that people do. So they may uh, decide that they'll eat between a, a, a certain time in the morning, a certain time in the afternoon or evening, and then not after that. So it allows for 12, 14, or 16 hours a day of fasting. And even that brief period of fasting, say between you know, 6 p.m. and 9 or 10 in the morning, is enough to induce metabolic changes that are thought cumulatively to be beneficial and helpful. And as Dr. Sabatino pointed out earlier, uh, just getting people into better habits where they're not eating all day long and all night long, uh, eating right before they go to bed, which may sleep, interfere with their sleep quality, et cetera, appears to have some benefit. What we're actually involved with, though, goes a little bit beyond that. It's medically supervised water-only fasting, the complete abstinence of all substances except pure water in an environment of complete rest. That's a little bit more complicated because in order to do fasting safely and efficiently, you have to first draw medications, pharmaceutical use. You have to get people to lead in properly with a preparatory diet. You need to have them in a resting state. If people are too active in fasting, if they're working, if they're exercising, the extra glucose that's needed to maintain brain and muscle function has to come from protein. So we're not interested in breaking down vital ish tissues when we fast. We're interested in mobilizing fat and giving a body, the body a chance to mobilize and eliminate these accumulated intermediary products of metabolism that build up and we think are associated with d disease and debility. So medically supervised fasting is just that. It's medically supervised in an environment of complete rest where people can be monitored, where there's a history, exam, and lab baseline established so it can be done safely. And we do this for up to 40 days. So people are on water-only controlled setting for up to 40 days. And during that process of medically supervised fasting, changes that might take a long time to take place with careful feeding can happen much more rapidly. So we're able to see big turns around normalizing blood pressure, normalizing blood glucose levels, the elimination of the pain associated with autoimmune disease, uh, resolution of things like lymphoma cancer. So lots of interesting stuff happens very rapidly during this intense process called medically supervised fasting. But it does need to be done in a supervised setting. That's where intermittent fasting, which can be done safely by most people on their own, long-term water fasting is something that's done in a controlled environment. You know, as you know, most of us are brought up, if you think about it, to fear our own vitality. I mean, it's kind of an interesting process because when you have symptoms, many of the acute symptoms that the body expresses are really very much a part of a vital healing process. So, but from the get-go, we've been taught that when these symptoms come up, they need to be suppressed. And so people seek out medication and do a lot of that medication suppression. So instead of really understanding the value of that process going to some continuation to allow the body to heal. In fasting, when you start allowing the body to go into that process where it's breaking down fat reserves and starting to feed itself from those tissues, you've got stuff stored in fat tissue that will now be mobilized in the process of detoxification. The body will use any avenue that it can to remove those, any opening that it can, skin, lungs, bowels, vagina, whatever it may be. And so there'll be a set of symptoms sometimes that can come up and some of it can be quite uncomfortable. And if you're not used to that, you may have that fear factor that comes up thinking, oh my God, this is something I need to suppress and medicate because that's what your model was when the physicians that do this and the hand-holding that we do can walk them through the process as being part of a major healing crisis or a healing thing that is in their best interest. And so there are major changes that go on in fasting far less than 40 days. In four days, you get major reboots of the immune system. There are major anti-inflammatory changes in the space of five to seven days. So major things can happen in a fasting state in a very beneficial way very, very quickly. Sometimes that would take significantly longer 
when you're doing it in a regular waking state, being overfed, being under stress, being involved in your normal daily life. So again, the, the supervision is useful because first of all, we have experience in knowing what can come up during these states of fasting. And we can also help people realize that they can be part of a very constructive healing process rather than something they have to battle against and medicate and be fearful of. Why is this such a tiny little thing? I mean, I've known about this, like we've talked about for the 40 years that, that I've known you guys. And I know there was a lot of study done in the former Soviet Union back in, in the 1970s and, and 60s. And yet it's something most people have never heard of. Yeah, well, that's uh, I think that's answer to that is that, you know, anything that is unpleasant or difficult, you know, is going to have a, a relatively limited audience. Although the interest in fasting has grown geometrically. I know at the True North Health Center, we see over a thousand patients a year that are admitted for medically supervised fasting. Uh, there's places now all over the country that are doing uh, versions of this. And so I think the interest is increasing. But the fact is, fasting can be an intense and miserable experience unless you prepare properly for it. And preparing properly for it means getting rid of the dependence on the drugs, both recreational and prescription, making the necessary preparatory dietary changes. It's serious business. Most people that are willing to do this are motivated by pain, debility, and fear of death. They're not doing it where I think the biggest benefit can come is health promotion, health prevention. I think the people that get the best benefit of fasting, like Dr. Sabatino mentioned, are people that are doing it before they fall apart and use relatively briefer periods of time, five to 10 days of fasting, to give their body a chance to reboot itself. Um, you know, when you think about it, there's all kinds of stuff going on with healing we don't normally consider. For example, you have about five pounds of bacteria living in your colon right now. That's five pounds, it's a lot. It's like a kidney or something. And th that material is living creatures that's eating and, and drinking and pooing inside you right now. What your bacteria poo inside you depends on what you feed them. If you feed them meat, you're getting TMA, which becomes TMAO, trimethylamine oxidase, which is highly irritating and thought to be tied into heart disease and cancer and all kinds of stuff. You feed them soluble fibers like plant-based foods, uh, sweet potatoes and vegetables, you're getting fertilizer. So you're getting your vitamin K and all kinds of stuff. So you want the right kind of bacteria giving off the right kind of byproducts, but that means you have to feed it the right kind of diet. One of the things that we believe happens in fasting is when things get out of balance because people have used antibiotics or they've eaten sugary processed foods and they get a different type of flora living in their gut, is it gives the body a chance to reboot that and recalibrate that. And so it's not just the mi microbiome that's changed, but the entire body gets changed. You see these transformations that are really quite remarkable. For example, we did a study with high blood pressure High blood pressure is, you know, the leading contributing cause of death and disability in our society. It's responsible for the strokes and so many problems that people experience. 174 people with high blood pressure, 174 people normal to normalize their pressure enough to eliminate medication. Virtually everybody with essential hypertension will normalize their blood pressure if you're able to fast them long enough and then get them to do dangerous and radical things like eat a whole plant food SOS-free diet, get appropriate exercise and sleep. This is a completely reversible problem, and yet under medical management, if you go to a physician with high blood pressure, they're going to tell you, well, take this drug or drugs, and we guarantee you, if you do what you're told, you'll never get well. You'll be sick the rest of your life. You'll be on drugs forever because we guarantee you what we do will never get you healthy. We have a different approach, which is instead of trying to treat the symptoms of the disease by taking drugs with their side effects that have a limited effect at lowering pressure, actually get rid of the cause of the problem, which is what you put in your mouth and how you live your life. And I'll do a translation for anybody that doesn't know uh, SOS, that means salt, oil, sugar. So we're talking with the heavy hitters here <laughs> today in terms of the food. Yeah, when, you, when, you, when you talk about, you know, the attractiveness of fasting, it's hard to sell 
for many people an idea, a program that's based on deprivation and a culture of excess. I mean, when you when you really think about it, you you've gotten to this comfort zone with all this crap. I'm going to be honest with you what it is. And then, you know, now someone's saying we're going to promote health by taking it all away. And you're going to go through a very painful period of time to get to this restoration of health. So you have to be a pretty motivated individual to say, yeah, I've had enough of all of this and I'm willing to go through that. And I want to go through those steps. And I want to go to a little bit of that, what I call to hell and back, because there is a certain amount of that that has to happen. You have to unwind. You have to deal with what has gone on before. And the truth of the matter is, with as, as Alan said, when you're looking at most physicians in practice, if you come in with high blood pressure, it's not that they don't know that sodium excess is going to raise blood pressure, because they do. It's not that some of them don't know that some positive lifestyle choices, whether it's physical activity or stress management, may have some value. They just don't believe you're going to do it. And they make a decision that they shouldn't be making. The doctor's position should be to educate that individual with all of the options that are going to promote that recovery. When they tell you, if I give you high blood pressure and you say to me, well, doc, that's great. You're going to help me get this blood pressure down with this medication. How long will I be taking it? Well, look you straight in the eye and say, for life. The truth of the matter is we know even without fasting, we know that if you impose many of the lifestyle changes we're talking about, that pressure is going to come down. Fasting can speed up that process, but a lot of essential hypertension, a lot of basic problems, just eating in whole food, plant-based manner with this, without the salt, oil, and sugar added is going to resolve a number of problems without even having to go there to a, a fasting state. But the issue also is that, remember, even when you fast, you're fasting a very small percentage of your life. If it's a small percentage, you're eating 99% of your time. So what you do with those food choices and lifestyle choices become a major determining factor. What I like about fasting is it can be a remarkable motivating tool to get on a path to make those changes. And I like that from the standpoint of addictions and cravings and so on because it increases a certain kind of internal sensitivity, even taste sensitivity, that now allows you to be open and aware and alive with things in a more simplified manner. And it can be a jumpstart for making changes that truly will promote health. Well, let's talk about what truly promotes health. And let's talk a little bit about this controversial area of, of being overweight. There are a lot of people who have struggled with that and suffered with that so much that they've just said, you know what, I'm going to eat well, I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to live my life. Just leave me alone about the size of my body. So take that and let me know what you think. Well, there's not many alcoholics that say, you know, I've tried to quit and it's too difficult, so I'm just going to accept myself the way that I am as a drunk. Not necessarily a health-promoting uh, model. The reality is if people do eat healthfully as we're defining it and they exercise appropriately and they sleep adequately, weight's not going to be an issue because they're going to lose weight. If they're a male, they're going to lose between two and three pounds a week. If they're a female, it's going to be one to two pounds a week down towards their optimum weight. And so the reality is that if people are maintaining significant health compromising excess amounts of weight, we can't pretend because we want to be socially correct that that's not real. It's a direct measure of the choices that they're making. Now, do some people have to work harder than others? Sure. If you're a female, you're an energy-conserving fat storage device. If you think about it biologically, women have to be able to store fat to survive a period of biological vulnerability called pregnancy. So they have a lot more estrogen, which amongst other things makes fat storage more efficient. Men have testosterone, a fat-burning hormone. It's easier on average, everything else being equal, for men to lose weight than it would be for women because that's the way women are designed. This is a biological design uh, key. And in a natural setting, it works perfectly. Because in a natural setting, there is no dietary excess. There is no obesity. Look at animals on the planet, male and female. 
There is no obesity unless they get access to highly processed foods. Even animals we think of as being overweight or, or fat, uh, like whales, are not. They're 9% body fat. They're lean, mean machines. And so the idea that uh, it's okay to say, well, I'm 50 or 60 pounds above my optimum weight. I'm just going to love myself the way I am and not make any effort to try to correct the issue, I think is a disservice to people. The fact that they're struggling is, is in part because they have good, efficient plumbing. If you have a healthy digestive system, you will gain fat easier than a person that's debilitated and doesn't have that. Some people can eat whatever they want. They're never going to gain any weight. That's not a good thing. Biologically speaking, if you can get fat, if you can gain extra weight, that's a good sign. Your ancestors are the ones that survived. That's a good thing. We want to have – I'd much rather work with a patient that has significant excess weight than a person that's significantly underweight because that's a, that's a whole different kind of a problem. But we're not designed for this environment. So if you take the overweight person, I don't care what their emotional baggage is, their scar tissue, they're all those issues. Put them in an environment where they have no choice but to eat an abundance of health-promoting food. They lose weight two pounds a week down to their optimum weight. Now, does a person with emotional scar tissue have to work harder at it? Sure. It's probably easier if you come in a family that's been loving and supportive and you have a supportive mate and you're in an environment that's health-promoting. Of course it's easier. If you don't have the benefit of those things, you have to work harder in order to be able to overcome those limitations. It doesn't mean you won't be successful. It means you have to work harder. So my attitude is that we have to accept our strengths and weaknesses. We have to suck it up and do the right thing and stop pretending that it's an unachievable goal just because it's politically incorrect to acknowledge the fact that being overweight is a health-compromising state. Yeah. You know, we're at a time with these PC words like fatness and so on, and um, uh, the bottom line, it's not about fat shaming because no one's really doing that. But what has to be dealt with is that many of those habits that are feeding that problem are tied into these pleasure addictions that we've talked about. And, you know, the addictive field is kind of intriguing because they have a new model and a new simple definition for how they define what addiction is. And they've because they had to simplify it. And the way they simplified it is, is that it is a continued or compulsive use or a substance of a substance or a behavior. And here's the kicker without regard for negative consequences. So when you look at the body, it's not about fat shaming, but it is about having to somehow, some way get to that point where you acknowledge and recognize the negative consequence that this provides and then see if there's some way you can set in motion something that's going to bring you back into balance with that. And the fact of the matter is we now know that fatness is truly the problem. It's not really the weight issues per se, which is why measurements like body mass index have to be tied together with body fat percentage and weight because the truth is we now know that fat cells, especially visceral fat, operates almost like an organ into itself. In fact, there are people that want to classify body fat almost like an additional organ because it's producing a series of chemicals and hormones, aromatase, estrogen, testosterone, a series of hormones that we know now will program cancer, will be some of the greatest causes of cancer in the Western world are increases in body fat percentage. So yes, it's a harsh lesson sometimes to speak about it and someone who's having a struggle with it may feel like they're being shamed or pointed fingers at, but that's not what we're doing. We're saying that you have to address a major health risk. It would be like me reacting to saturated fat as a risk factor for heart disease. Am I going to really get shamed by the fact that you point out that I'm eating a lot of saturated fat? No, the point is, as physicians and educators, we're trying to teach people that, look, you've got this population of cells, you've got this population of material that has to be reduced because it is a primary risk factor for dangerous consequence. And if you're fat, it's not about shaming you, but what can you do to move forward and reduce that risk? The important thing to remember, too, is that even if you're significantly overweight, 
It doesn't matter how much overweight you are. The moment you make dietary changes consistent with improving your health, there's two things that are going to happen. One, your risk factors begin to drop far before the extra weight goes away. Because it's not so much just about the weight, but the diet that allows the weight to be maintained. So the, the moment you make adequate dietary changes, weight will begin to go down slowly but surely in a very predictable way. And your risk factors geometrically start to drop. So even before you've, you know, it may take a while to get the extra reserves off, but it doesn't take a while to start reducing your risk factors. And so I think that it's a, it, the, a big mistake that's made right now is people believe, well, I'll, if I love myself just as I am, everything will be fine. And so we're not saying don't love yourself. You should love yourself regardless of your size or your shape or anything else. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you've done enough just because it's hard. And, and on the other side of this, this is kind of an intriguing thing to me because when I was doing some research for a book that I was writing, there's a whole area now of what are called normal weight obesity. And I find that a very intriguing place because it's not just about the body image of fatness. We now know that the same fat, Alan was talking about certain people that stay thin regardless of what they eat. And what we're finding is that there's a whole population of people with normal weight who are almost morbidly obese but not showing it in numbers on the scale. So I try to get people to avoid the scale concept of looking at evaluating health by numbers on a scale and realizing that if you're eating animal products and you're, and you're not eating plant-based foods and you're eating these things that we know about, we now know there's a significant number of over-fat people with body mass index under 25, which would normally be used as a model for obesity. So there's the, this came out of early Finland studies, the Finn studies that were done on normal-weighted obesity. So it's kind of an intriguing area to understand that it's not just about numbers on the scale. I don't really care about that because so many people go up and down emotionally with that. It's really looking at what is the content of that body. And as you embrace the things we're talking about, that risk factor will go down. And that's what's significant. You know, not so much getting lost in every minutia of every ounce on a scale. And it's not about shaming someone, but you certainly cannot accept that, and it's not about not loving yourself. My opinion would be that if it's truly a situation of self-love, you would do what you can to reduce the risk that's taking you to a place that's making you less available, less functional, less capable of experiencing a healthy life. Well, you also uh, did a talk at, at this retreat, Dr. Frank, where you talked about some of the causes of overweight and obesity that didn't have to do with food. You talked about hormones and, and about sleep. Uh, what's some of that information? Well, that's what we were talking about. I mean, this is a, if you think about it, human beings are kind of a complicated animal that responds to some very simple changes, really, truthfully. But like we talked about the fact that when people are under stress, you're going to have especially chronic stress. Like we're designed to handle and deal with threatening circumstances in the environment. So we have a fight or flight response that kicks in when we have to deal with these threatening circumstances where the body sets in motion a series of actions, increased muscle tension, high blood pressure, changes that are set in motion for an acute short period to deal with an event at hand. The problem in modern times is those stresses. We're not, we're not dealing with concrete tribes and animals anymore. So the stresses have become more of these gnawing, nagging, constant chronic changes that now impose a chronic stress component that the body has to adapt to in what is called a general adaptation approach. So they have an alarm phase resistance. And then if that goes on long enough, they get exhausted. But the what's going on in that exhaustion or, or that pattern of dealing with stress is that the hormonal and nervous system and other parts of the body have to be have to rise to the occasion to handle those events. And organs like the adrenal gland, the thyroid gland, they are trying to compensate 
in the ways that they work and the hormones they release for that ongoing chronic nature of those events. And if it goes on long enough, as it does for many of us, there'll be an exhaustion of those tissues and glands. Well, the glands of stress like adrenal and thyroid are not only tied into the fight or flight response, they're the tissues that are involved with basal metabolic rate, metabolic activity, and so on. So stress itself can be a factor that can drive reactive weight gain. Sleep, we know with sleep deficiency, there are several different things that occur. There's increased cortisol release, which increases inflammation and increased abdominal belly fat. We know that insulin resistance goes up with sleep deficiency. So sugars in, don't get into cells nearly as effectively. Sugar goes up. It's a threat to the system. Body converts it into fat, and that becomes a storage form of fat. And then it will also drive reactive craving because when cells are deprived of sugar because insulin can't attach, what are you going to crave? The most refined garbage that you can. The uh, hormones that regulate satiety like ghrelin, leptins, they're also aggravated in a way by sleep deficiency that will promote overeating and a lack of satiety. So we see in stress and sleep, for example, just two places where not, they will be tied to food use because they will drive abnormal food use but they are an underlying state of physiological change that's making that state a more dramatic outcome in that state of weight gain. Fascinating. Now, I want to shift a little bit here. This is the Main Street Vegan Program. I personally and so many of, of my listeners care passionately uh, about animals, about their cruelty and their slaughter. And we also care about the planet and getting that animal agriculture out of the way. So hopefully we'll have a planet to live on. And there was a time when vegans just ate plants because that's what there was. And now there's a lot of other food that counts as vegan, and yet it's a lot richer. And I know you've talked about this some, Dr. Goldhammer. So what do you have to say to vegans? Well, you know, being a vegan um, in terms of eliminating animal foods has benefits. People often are motivated by moral, ethical, and spiritual reasons. From a personal health uh, standpoint, you have to be careful, though, because many vegans think because they've taken the leap and gotten rid of animal foods, they're kind of done. And I'm saying you're not done, you're just beginning. Because getting rid of animal foods is only half the battle. The other half is getting rid of the pleasure trap chemicals added to food, the salt, the oil, and the sugar. And unfortunately, many vegans give up the animal foods, but they replace it with disproportionate amount of highly processed sugary foods. And as bad as animal foods are, these vegan processed foods can be just as uh, uh, damaging or even in some cases more so than the animal foods they displace from a health standpoint a personal health standpoint, not necessarily a planet health standpoint, not necessarily a moral ethical viewpoint. We talk about that being a vegan might help you get into heaven by being a better person, but it won't delay how quickly you go there. Unless in addition to being vegan, you also get rid of these processed chemicals. So we talk about being vegan SOS free. And that's a difficult thing, uh, I think, for people to swallow, particularly if health hasn't been their primary motivating factor. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times when we're talking to vegan groups, they're already committed morally, ethically, and spiritually. We just have to get them to fine-tune that vegan diet to be a whole plant food diet that's free of salt, oil, and sugar. It's very tricky because what's bringing so many people into veganism are these processed foods that for years, you know, I would tell people I was vegan and they're like, oh, I could never do that. I could never give up pizza. And now, of course, they don't have to. And so it seems to be a little bit of a conflict. Anybody know how to solve that? Yeah, and people have to uh, hopefully not have to wait till they're motivated by pain, debility, and death to recognize that it's in their interest as well as the planet's interest for them to adopt a whole plant food SOS-free diet. People that do that don't look back and say, oh, I like my life a lot better when I was a drunk or when I was addicted to the pleasure trap foods. They say, oh, I'm so glad that I, you know, I got free hopefully before 
my physical health was compromised. People don't adopt these diets and then find out it's not worth the trouble. They find out that it is a lot of trouble. It's a lot of extra work, but the reward is well worth the effort. The other night uh, at, at this Balance for Life retreat, uh, Dr. Sabatino gave a talk that I wasn't able to hear. I had a business thing going on, and the next day I asked one of the gentlemen here what it was like, and he said, well, you would have really liked the last 20 minutes. It was a vegan rally. So <laughs> as a physician, as someone who is very interested in, in people's physical health, yet you did a 20-minute vegan rally. Tell us about that. It wasn't quite a vegan rally, but the, the, what, what's important to me is, of course, not only my personal health, and I, and I think that, of course, we're all concerned about personal health. I'm also a little bit concerned about legacy and what's left for, for people that come after. I'm a father, I have children, and I know other people love their children, and we have all of that going on. And the truth of the matter is we have some major crises in how we eat and do that. But the truth of the matter is there are some crises that are surrounding us that are tied into how we live and the food choices we make. For example, one is climate change. And the bottom line is this is an imminent health risk. In fact, right now, you know, when you look at the recent Paris and Poland Accords, the idea is, is that if we don't reduce carbon emissions to half of what they are right now by 2030, there's a prediction of major catastrophic change on health, environment and everything else. So to me, I don't want to be able to just I want to be able to address what I think is important in terms of personal habits. But I think it has to tie significantly connected to what we can do. And we know that when you're using up with it. Oh, that, that was beautiful. That was brilliant. Thank you all so very much. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and to all of you. God bless and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.